You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Lara Shipley and Anton Dolezal to talk about their latest collaboration, Devil's Promenade. Anton Dolezal and Lara Shipley are collaborative visual artists whose work employs photography, video, sound, archival materials, and bookmaking to survey the cultural and political dynamics of American history, folklore, and mythology. Their work has been exhibited widely in museums and galleries in the United States, Europe, and Central America, and is held in notable public collections, including the Museum of Contemporary Photography, Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, Whitney Museum of American Art Special Collections, and Yale University. They are the author of several books, including Spook Light Chronicles and Devil's Promenade, and their work has been profiled with the British Journal of Photography, El Pais, Laika Photograph, International Magazine, and National Public Radio and Smithsonian Magazine. Anton has lectured and taught workshops at academic and nonprofit institutions throughout the United States and currently teaches at the University of Nevada, Reno. Lara has taught at the University of Kansas, Kansas City Art Institute, and is currently assistant professor of photography at Michigan State University. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I, this isn't always the case, but I have had the pleasure of meeting both of you in person um, and having a chance to chat about this book. So I'm so excited that we can share this with our listeners and all of our readers at Skylight. Um, this is a bit of a like Skylight favorite uh, in our arts annex. So I would love uh -huh. if you could start us off by giving us a little uh, background on this project and give us a little a read from, uh, from the back there. Sure. Well, um, both Laura and I are from the Ozark region of the United States. I'm from eastern Oklahoma and Laura is from Missouri. And Devil's Promenade takes place in the Ozarks. Devil's Promenade is a very small, or the Ozarks are a geographical region uh, that's known by its like mountainous um, valleys and hills. Um, it's very dense woods. Um, and we, as growing up there, we really wanted to make a project that was, we were remembered as children, um, but now we're adults, we've moved away from that place. And coming back there, it seems very different from us. So we wanna do a project about the culture we're from, but also we wanted to do it in this kind of different way, just looking at the oral storytelling tradition, which is really robust and vibrant in that community and looking at the folkloric storytelling tradition of that community and the stories that we heard growing up. And we implemented that into the book and Devil's Promenade is, really kind of the foundational story of, of of the folkloric story of that uh body of work where it's a very small area remote area in the ozarks um where people claim to see this light this light phenomena that the people call the ozark light and it changed the, the light changes colors and it appears in different places it'll appear in the woods it'll appear on this road um, but it's also, and people have been coming out there for over a hundred years to see this light. No one can explain what it is. It's also a place people claim that the devil exists. So people have stories of seeing the devil on this road. And we felt that that was a really good metaphor um, for us to sort of navigate into Ozark culture 
where we're dealing with um, going out into this very remote region and you might find the light, you might find the devil, you might find something scary, you might find something beautiful. Um, and it's really that experience of that we felt as children of hearing these stories and experiencing this ourselves um, that we wanted to portray in this book. Yeah. And um, so uh, I'll read just a little passage that's in the back of the book. This is something that I wrote to, um, you know, there's so much that in the way we talk about the work through the photographs is meant to be a little open-ended and uh, can be mysterious. And um, so this, this does, I think, give a little bit more insight to not only uh, what the book is about, but our relationship to it. So uh, this is called The Devil and the Light. And there are a few, uh, it's hard to describe in, as I'm reading it out loud, there are a few asides in this that are kind of flashbacks. So um, yeah, I hope that makes sense when it's read out loud. We try to put the devil in the woods to remove him from our bodies. It's safer if we know where he is. Then, of course, if we end up consumed by our demons, it's our own doing for seeking them out. Nothing anyone else can do about it but pray. There are places that are known by the people who live there to be thin. Places where not everything must be explained to be true. Devil's Promenade is an unassuming county road in the Ozark region of the Midwest, where a traveler might encounter a mysterious orb of floating light. It's also a place where locals say the devil lives. Growing up in the Ozarks, the devil was just as present as any angel, savior, son, or holy ghost. I didn't think much about it until years later after moving around in different cities in America. People in those places didn't talk about the devil all the time. By some accounts, even the name Ozark comes from the Bodeark tree, also known as the devil's tree. Its fruit is ugly and grapefruit sized with a texture like brains. It's also poisonous and foul smelling. We used to keep one in the closet to ward off moss. In legend, it was a tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it grew the most delicious, nutritious fruit in the world until Adam took a bite. That is what I admire about the Ozarks. It's a place where people can take an ordinary and ugly tree and surround it with a story both grand and menacing. Anton and I first visited Devil's Promenade together almost a decade ago. His father grew up nearby, the adopted child of wheat farmers. During quiet nights, storytelling was a regular pastime. When Anton was a kid, his dad would take him camping and recount the same stories around a campfire. One was about that mysterious floating Ozark light, which he boasted of seeing with his own eyes. We thought the stories of the light and the devil were an appropriate metaphor for the Ozarks and might lead to some understanding to the region itself, something Anton and I both felt compelled to do. While neither of us lived there any longer, we were both drawn back to this place that had shaped us but remained beyond our comprehension. Revisiting the landscape felt like revisiting my past life as a fantastical child, a restless teen. The Ozarks is where I encountered the world and all its good and evil, where I learned that some paths you choose can't be altered. When I was 10, I played all day in the woods with my friend Sherry. We talked about the creatures that lived there. We talked about becoming the creatures that lived there. Once she made me look at a hunted deer being bled from a tree hanging by its midsection, bullet wounds staining its fur. I screamed and screamed, but she didn't let me go until I looked. Devil's Promenade is not a tourist attraction. 
Many locals warned us about neighbors on the road who were known to shoot at trespassers. Large dogs roamed loose. It's not easy to pull your car over or safe to walk around. The shoulder drops into deep ditches filled with tall grass and poisonous copperhead snakes. During summer weekends, it can be busy with cars lined up and folks waiting to see the light. But most nights, it looks like any other dark country road. Sitting out there, Anton and I felt alone, but it was never quiet. In the summer, the Ozark woods are teeming with creatures, deer, raccoons, mice, foxes, all migrating through the night, rustling leaves and grass as they go. In the dark, these sounds can feel like the soft steps of a stranger. In the distance, other sounds could be heard, coyotes, barn owls, predatory sounds. Louder than anything are the bugs, humming in unison, like the heartbeat of some enormous animal. Wandering around the woods on nights like this, it's easy to imagine there's a larger life force here that we don't understand. There's a bridge to cross to get to Devil's Promenade Road. It's the one where the devil lives. We meet people who believe they've seen him there. It sits on the Quapaw Nation's reservation land. The Quapaw were one of several Plains tribes that were relocated to this region after or during Jackson's Trail of Tears in the 1830s. Around the same time, white settlers moved in, many from Appalachia, bringing their stories rooted in European folklore and morphed by a century in the hills. The stories of the Quapaw and the white settlers run together in this region, and first sightings of the light are widely thought to have originated during this time. My guess it was the white settlers who conjured a particularly Faustian devil waiting on the bridge to steal a soul in exchange for a wish. While I don't consider myself a superstitious person, whenever we crossed the Devil's Bridge, I tried my hardest to wish for nothing, but found I never could. That, of course, is the trick. To be human is to want, but to want in a place with so little to offer, that is dangerous. The preachers know. So many of them I met have warded off their own temptations of the devil, adultery, addiction, crime. Salvation isn't theoretical, it is survival. Beware of your own humanity, they warn, a state of persistent wanting, your original sin. When I was 13, I went to a party in the house in the woods. It was dark and crowded. Everyone was older. We sat in circles, passing around joints of ditchweed. Then someone offered me crystal. I said yes, but my friend called me to join another group, so I never tried it. Shortly after that, one of our friends did try it, at first just once and then often. Soon she wasn't coming to school anymore. The Ozark region does not have a great reputation. It's a problem that begins in the soil. As anyone who's ever tried to garden in the Ozarks can tell you, it's a little bit of dirt sitting on a lot of rocks. The Ozarks are very old mountains, some of the oldest in the world. The remaining hills polished down over millennia are a farmer's wasteland located in the breadbasket of America. No one becomes wealthy settling here. There has never been a lot of jobs, especially good ones. Every boom quickly busted. So the Ozarks is known as a place of last resort, a place to hide, a place you get stuck. It's as if God struggles to see the inhabitants of these wooded hills, making their neighbors from wide open plains mistrustful. Whenever I'd go back, people were always telling me to be careful. It's a strange thing to hear about the place you come from and it made me defensive. When we did encounter some wild times happening in the woods and rivers, 
though a lot of people we met at these parties were actually just down for the weekend from places like Kansas City and St. Louis. One local told us he thought people brought along with them the bad they expected to find here. In the wooded nooks of hills, down widening gravel roads, we met many individualistic and creative people too, musicians, artists, storytellers, independent groups like Mennonites and Amish, those who found the affordability and natural beauty their own private Eden. Once we happened upon a revival tent, occupying a vacant lot for a few months before being replaced by a 4th of July fireworks stand. In between the singing, chanting, and speaking in tongues, people told their stories. The stories were relatable. People were worried, not just for their souls, but for their bodies. They said that bad experiences with doctors had left them nervous and untrusting, looking for an alternative. They weren't ready to die. They had, to, they had come to the revival to feel moved by a divine force, to touch and be touched, to be healed. Also, more simply, to feel the support of a community, to reach for an ecstatic experience together, to find a balm for the lonely world. When I was 15, one day I was invited to see a play after school. The play was held at a small one-room church in the woods. It was more of a series of skits in which nice people who weren't saved died and went to hell. It was very upsetting. Soon I found myself standing in front of the church. The preacher saved my soul. It only took a minute. I cried so hard I gave myself a headache. I wanted to go home. My friends were so happy for me. One night on Devil's Promenade, Anton and I ran into a group of teenagers out looking for the lights. We joined them for a while, walking down the road, talking about growing up in the Ozarks. The teens can't come out here for something to do on a hot summer night. They'd heard stories about the light from older siblings and decided to find it themselves. As we approached the crest of a hill, our conversation stopped. For a moment, we all stared in silence down the road toward the next hilltop. Someone asked, is that them? Yeah, we all agreed, it was them. We had found the lights. The orbs undulated through space as if underwater, merging and splitting again. They cast a faint glow on the road they hovered above. Sometimes they looked white, sometimes red, green, or blue. The only sound was the insect drone pulsing along with the dancing orbs. After some time, maybe 10 minutes, the teens got bored and left. They had been out seeking something scary, but this wasn't scary, it was beautiful. Anton and I hung out to watch the lights for a long time, reveling in the sight of a rare thing that couldn't be explained. We stayed until the lights grew dim and faded away. Then we walked down the hill to the place where they had been. We don't know what we expected to find, but nothing was there. Though we returned to Devil's Promenade several times after, we never saw the Ozark light again. We never met the devil either, but we did meet some people struggling with demons of their own. The lonely, the addicted, the sick, those hungry for things they never got. People whose lives turned in directions that seemed out of their control. People who never had options to feel in control in the first place. There's nothing unusual about the people here. They can be found anywhere in America, a country where the myth of success is like the devil's bridge, a dream exchange for a soul. So that paints such a, a vivid 
picture of this place. And that was how I kind of wanted to start this conversation was aside from photography being both of your mediums, what, what was the decision like to, because Anton, you mentioned like telling an oral, trying to um, like put together this oral history of this place. And what was the decision like to tell that story through photographs rather than say, just writing a big oral history about the things that people have seen and interviewing people about um, the things that have happened to them while on this road. And there is that, that letter that you just read for us, Laura, in the back, which does give like a little bit of insight, but what did, what did photography offer to this project that words just simply couldn't capture? That's, that's a great question. When Laura and I started this project, we were both operating in the documentary tradition of photography. Uh, Laura has a degree in journalism and I was operating, yeah, making documentary photographs. And that's, that, that was the medium that we felt most connected with. And when we were starting to make this, we were starting to interview people, we were taking documentary photos and we realized that it wasn't giving a full portrayal of what we have experienced the Ozarks to be. And that's why we really started to gravitate towards these folklore traditions because we felt those folklore traditions um, could represent something that was underlying. It could provide a nuance to a very complex region of the United States where we felt there wasn't a lot of nuance um, happening. And we felt that there were documentary projects that just weren't giving that nuance um, that we had seen before. So that's one reason we, we focused on the folkloric aspect. And then photography has, is a medium that has a lot of um, strengths and it has a lot of flaws. And one of those kind of whether, depending on, on which way you look at it, it's very ambiguous and it provides a lot of mystery. And we felt that while there's a lot of photographs in our series that are referential and documentary, we could also expand um, and make very cinematic types of images that were alluding to the folkloric stories that we were being told um, and really be able to kind of provide that mystery that we were seeing in those folkloric stories as well. Yeah, to um, add on to uh, what Anton is saying, particularly about the, um, the uh, ambiguity that can happen through photography, um, uh, I'm interested in, in seeing that as a strength. I think um, one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to include the, the letter in the back um, was uh, I did want at some point to, um, to state our own sort of our own connection or like deeply personal connection. But I think what can be great through photographs and one of the reasons why that essay is at the back of the book, so you experience the photographs first, mm -hmm. is um, we tend to forget when we're looking at a photograph that we're looking through the eyes of an author and the, the artist that authored that image. Uh, they do just feel like pieces of the world. I think that's one of the things about photography that makes it so... Uh, intriguing and exciting is that we get, we feel like we get to see something uh, and really have uh, our own experience with it um, just by opening a book. So I think that there's something um, uh, to that experience of seeing a place through images that makes it feel um, 
uh, real and, uh, and, and alive in a way that, um, that can feel very personal for people, um, that does kind of remove us a little bit. Um, but yeah, we, that's also something that we like to play with, uh, people's desire to believe in photographs is something that we like to challenge. And then both, we both believe people should be a little more careful and critical, especially as photographic (laughs) educators. So that mix of photographs that are really presenting themselves as, um, feeling like documents in the, in the history of documentary photography, um, purposely mixing those with these, um, fantastical pictures that feel like they just can't be real. Um, we wanted people to be moving through, um, the images, um, trying to having a little bit trouble finding their footing, you know, being pushed a little bit between this, um, the real and the imagined. And um, I mean, that also, that's how folklore operates, right? It's like stories that are very much real, very much based in a a place, based in a physical location. Um, But they are, and and they speak to very real issues, but they're also larger than life and they're, you know, mysterious and uh, magical. And, you know, when we're looking at talking about, social issues in the Ozarks, which is really, as you can see in what I wrote, is some very core to what we were thinking about. Um, we wanted to find a format that made sense um, that people could um, maybe connect uh, not just to the way things looked, but the psychology of experience. And so um, having photographs that feel like, okay, this is real, I'm seeing this place, but also this is this, imaginary element that is coming out of the things that people are sharing and mixing those with um, quotes that come out throughout the book that uh, kind of move this along. It is a little bit of that experience of like going out there and discovering it for yourself. Well, and there aren't just, there aren't just uh, photos of this place specifically, but there are photos of people um that you encountered in this place and I I am saying people but just human beings for our listeners they're not like fantastical people they are just people that (laughs) you you encountered uh during this project and so I wanted to ask you because in the letter too you talk about um you know people try to warn people off they say that people have shot trespassers who are walking along this bridge and all these things so a little bit of a two-part question that we can get into is when you went back to the Ozarks to start working on this project. Did you stay for an extended length of time or did you work on it continuously and kind of go back to your own homes or wherever you were living your lives and then keep returning um, at different points in time to talk to people and uh, document the space? And at that point, these people you were encountering, how many of them like, were they wary of talking to you? Were there some who completely shut you down and were like, I'm not going to talk to these outsiders, even though you are from this place originally? Like, what was the, what was the interaction like with the people that you came up to who was welcome, like, take my picture, put me in your book, excited about it, if that was the, the energy there, or just kind of what that experience was like going in, trying to document a place with people that you don't know. Um, do you, do you mind if I just say something real quick, Anton? <laughs> Pass it over. Uh, yeah, I, 
I think what what really was important for the project was um, taking the time. I mean, this is something we worked on for like a decade and, mm -hmm. you know, actively photographing, you know, we were out for like about a month at a time, once a year in the spring. Um, and so we took a lot of time to figure out um, what, what, how we wanted to focus the project. And if we had been out there saying, you know, hey, you know, we wanted to make a documentary project about all the problems in the Ozarks. Yeah, I don't think that would have uh, opened a lot of doors for us, but uh, our interest in folklore and like the stories, so that we weren't just, we weren't just reading folkloric books like from uh, archives and bookstores, but we were really gathering stories that people remembered and told. And uh, and yeah, that that really, was something people were excited about generally. Yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, that's, a, um, I don't know, just thinking about like, uh, the stories that are in a place, not just folkloric story, but like, if, you know, coming from a journalist background. Yeah. If you come up to someone and you know, the same stories, like that's an immediate point of connection, which is what folklore does in general, right. it kind of lets someone know that you are from the same either place or time that they are. Right, right, right. And, and really valuing um, their cultural contributions. Mm -hmm. which, I mean, we do. We, we really, um, like, Ozarks has one of the best documented folkloric collections in the country, and it's, it's incredible. And, you know, it is a community uh, place of artists, musicians, you know, visual artists as well as storytellers. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the really important aspects um, of how we uh, like just navigated in the Ozarks is we would go there for a month, but we were camping. And we were, this is, uh, we were camping because we just didn't have a lot of money and we couldn't afford mm -hmm. hotel rooms, but it became a completely immersive experience for us. So when we're camping out in the woods, now all of a sudden we have all of this time to make these landscapes at night and to make these kind of psychological landscapes. Um, and we're also feeling more connected to just the land and the people that we're meeting in that area. And um, I think that was incredibly important um, to that experience. And during the day, our process would really be just going out. Sometimes we would have a plan, sometimes we wouldn't. And we would go and try to meet people and we would talk to them. And like Laura was saying, just asking someone, have you ever seen the Ozark light? Could you tell us your experience? People would light up and they would tell you these really personal stories. Sometimes they would be very philosophical and spiritual. And it, these stories were bringing out something that doesn't necessarily happen in my everyday today conversations with people and it was really special and so when we were recording these stories often we would take a portrait of the person we were photographing that portrait may never have entered the body of work but the story that they told might have and it could mm -hmm. be we heard this story over and over again about people claiming that they would be sitting on this on the road where people would see the light and the light would appear in their car and that's something we can't document, but we can stage it. And so we would make a photograph that was based on um, the story that we kept hearing over and over again. And so that that finds its way into these photographs as well. Just the conversations became pictures 
um, in this body of work. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting about that, really this kind of push and pull between uh, fantasy and reality is that we create these stage fantastical photographs with people that were genuinely, genuinely there to try to see the light, you know, that we just mm-hmm. met on the spot, you know, so um, who, you know, maybe that experience will happen to them at some point. I mean, um, yeah, I feel like I had something else to say. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> well, I know, I know we were talking about being aware having people be wary of outsiders as well. Yeah. And we were, we are outsiders at this point. We moved away right after yeah. high school and came yeah. back. And I, it was really important to us to tell these stories that were from this place and not stories from our, I mean, we do bring our own judgments ever. I think every artist does when they yeah. have a project like this. Um, but it was really important to have the stories of the people who live there and to interact with, with the people that we were interacting with and photographing and reinterpreting those stories um, from, from that, that voice. Um, but as far as people being wary, there, there were some people um, that were wary of us, I believe, but we were very transparent in what we do. Uh, we, we often would bring a book with us and say, hey, these are our photographs. This is where mm-hmm. it might exist in the future. It might exist in a gallery. And I think that we had overall a very positive um, experience with folks and also a very positive success rate of people just wanting to be around us and, and be photographed. Um, and yeah, I think I think actually, surprisingly, most people were willing to, to stand in front of our camera. Well, I think I remember what I wanted to talk about. I, I think it really was so much of... Um, just that people liked the the focus of the project and like like mm-hmm. Anton was saying that there it really made me realize how uh important shared stories are for community and just just as a way of processing uh the challenges that we all experience i mean like Anton was saying i mean we would we had amazing fascinating conversations with people we were just meeting like on the side of the road because we had this sort of point of connection where all we're talking about um, souls and the afterlife and these like uh, religious experiences, these fantastical experiences. We had, we had uh, car trouble one time because we um, uh, messed up the car, you know, on one of those back roads. And mm-hmm. uh, we ended up spending a day in the like Toyota dealership, I think. <laughs> and, uh, and then this guy was like, he was giving us a ride. And we were talking to him about it. This guy that we met at the dealership told us this incredible story about him being down in that area and the things that he experienced when he was a teenager and what they meant to him. So it's a really a gift to be able to connect with people in that way. And it made me realize like, this is why, this is why we hang on to these things because they, there is something they're, they're fun, but they're not just fun. They're serving a purpose, you know? And when we were like looking at a place where that we did want to talk about, you know, this is one of the most systemically impoverished parts of the country, just always really been um, very poor. And obviously there are a lot of issues that come along with that. And so to be able to talk about this idea of, uh, there's a devil and you might get your demons and we're not totally in control of these, of this, of the outcomes of our life. 
um, felt really uh, necessary and yeah, like um, healing. And then this can, you guys can answer this together as a, uh, as a pair of collaborators or individually, um, since you both grew up there and you know, you have your, you have your collective experiences, but you also have your individual experiences from growing up and being a part of that place. When you went back and you decided to do this project, either over the course of the years that you were there or each time uh, that you went back each month, did you guys go back there hoping to find anything? Either for like yourselves, was there something you were looking to looking to do or looking to accomplish aside from the work uh, itself that you either were able to complete, like Laura, Laura, you just mentioned that it was sort of a healing experience too. And you're talking about these important um, spiritual ideas that people experience in this place and everyone, I mean, if you don't have childhood baggage, I don't know. I have never met a person <laughs> as such. <laughs> um, so I know as you're, not, as you're asking this question, I'm like, yeah, how, how deep can we go? I know you can, you can answer however you'd like, but I mean, I always, cause my, my dad's family's from the, from the Midwest and every year, at least once a year, um, sometimes twice when we were younger, we would go, uh, back to Indiana and like, we would go to all the same places and like the same farms where my grandpa like grew up and ride the tractors and all that stuff. And I remember when my grandma died a few years ago and we like, we went back for her funeral and we all kind of stood around and we're like, this is, there's no reason to come back here now. Like, we're not going to be back here anymore. And now sometimes when I think about that and I'm going through like pictures or things like that, I think about all the I'm like, oh, I have to go back to Auburn and I have to like, I need to go back to that farm. Like I need to go there. I feel like there's things that I need to do there. And that this project kind of like one, I think just because of the imagery in general and those fields and those woods, you know, uh, made me think about the Midwest, but like, I'm sure that so much time after high school, like being gone. And then there's so many things you could go back there hoping to do or accomplish or even just dig through a little bit. And again, say as much as you'd like, but I was curious if there were things that you kind of went, went there hoping to either find or do. Um, and then also on the other side of that, if you found things that you weren't looking for um, or things happened that you, you didn't realize you needed, but this project offered that to you. Yeah, um, I, I will say my my father passed away when I was a teenager, and um, he was the one who told me the story of the Ozark Light. And we would go camping several times a year at weeks on uh, weeks at a time in the Ozarks every single year. And it was a really big, important part of my growing up as a child and my being immersed in oral storytelling traditions. So this project for me was a way to reconnect. Um, to that time of childhood and also to my father who I had you know seen in 10 years at this point of working mm -hmm. on the project and so that that on a personal level was important for me and I felt sort of um like there was a lineage there was an influence that was pretty direct in the way that I was thinking about the work that we were doing and the approach to the work we were doing for sure yeah 
very personal um, experience in that in that regard. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I I grew up in a town even smaller than Anton's. Not exactly from any kind of metropolitan area, but I'm like from like the teeniest of Ozark towns, like really so far away from a bookstore, a record store, um, a college, you know, uh, and it was, it was, um, it was a, a very singular type of experience growing up there. It was, um, and it, I did have, um, yeah, I had a lot of confusion about particularly, uh, the religious experiences I had growing up. I am personally really not a spiritual person, and, um, and, but yeah, I've had some, had some interesting experiences some of which I'm, I, I touch upon in the, mm-hmm. in the, uh, the writing that I'm like really trying to, yeah, I think I was trying to process and understand. I think that I left the Ozarks, um, really self-protective against, um, um, against people trying to influence, um, the way influence the way I'm seeing the world, you know, I felt like, um, just, uh, yeah, definitely traumatized by, um, just like, like an intense push of, uh, certain world perspectives that I experienced just cause I was, you know, just as like a very small, small insulated place with, uh, you know, a strong evangelical culture. And, um, as uh, going back, it really helped me to um, to to ha- to empathize with um, with people's beliefs and what what are and understand just how important it is that we um, that we all have the stories that we have that it's um, we're all just trying to understand the world that we're thrown into and yeah for me that's really what this book is about is me as a teenager, as a child, trying to understand the world I was thrown into, being surrounded by people who are trying to process their world. And, um, you know, some of the experiences that we revisited that I remembered from um, a, being young, um, experience of people being healed, speaking in tongues, things like that. Um, what, I, what I wrote in the, in the essay that really um, struck me this time as an adult, uh, was how there's sort of this um, this element of um, this theatrical element that um, may be very seem very bizarre, you know, to an outsider. Uh, so much of it was just story sharing, people sharing their experiences, and the experience were, could not have been more understandable and relatable. I mean, people were really like just like you know having a hard time, not having just generally not supported by the country they're living in and, uh, and, and wanting some support, wanting some care, you know? And, uh, yeah, so that was a really, that was a real gift for just like, you know, myself as like an evolving person, I think spending time there and thinking more about, you know, people who's, um, I'm just understanding people. I don't, um, uh, share beliefs with like really in the Ozarks or really anywhere any, anywhere that I'm in yeah yeah and it, us you know and, and then on the collaborative side of that we were when we started this we were in our late 20s 
Um, so we were relatively young artists um, working and we couldn't have done this without each other. We oh, could yeah. have such an immersive experience. There were immersive artists um, and going and, and being really embedded into the Oz rural Ozarks and speaking with as many people as we did, meeting as many different kinds of people. We'd certainly found ourselves in, in situations that we needed to get out of. Um, and not to go into detail on that, um, it, it was really great to have Laura there, I'm sure vice versa, of just being able to navigate um, our own na um, naive kind of way of working when we were much younger. We don't work that way as much anymore. We've learned a lot from this, this process and this project um, because of, of just how we work and how we can sort of support each other uh, while we're working. And then I, I really wanted to, uh, to kind of close out with some of your guys' recommendations or uh, other favorite work or documentations of the Ozarks as well. I'm going to assume that the Netflix show Ozark is not on that list, um, we may we may, that. we don't we we may we may cut that. But I don't. Um, I just I because I think if you asked anyone about Ozark, that would be they'd be like Ozark, and I haven't seen any of it. But I I would assume it has nothing to do with the Ozarks. Um, but I'm sure that there are so many um, so much great work out there about the Ozarks and the Ozarks that you both grew up with and in and know and other people trying to make that experience available to people so that they better understand that environment and the stories and oral histories of that place. Um, and I'd love for you to give us some recommendations about other things that people can seek out to, to learn a little bit more about this magical yet ordinary everyday place so with our when our research we found uh this wonderful archive by vance randolph and uh mary celeste parlor who are two ozark folklorists um that that really it's a quint this the, the quintessential collection of ozark folklore it exists in the at the university of arkansas special collections both of them have published probably 50 or 60 books i mean they published a lot of books and um we have these like homages to their work in in devil's promenade there's a book called we always lie to strangers which is just a collection mm -hmm. of ozark folk tales um pissing in the snow is is vance randolph's most well-known book of ozark folk tales uh laura i'll let you take it over well i mean yeah those those are the obvious for sure i i uh um um, but I also do just, you know, I, if I, I would want to encourage people, you know, to, yeah, learn more about, um, the Ozarks beyond Netflix shows, but <laughs> also like learn more about the places everyone is from, you know, like, I think that, uh, yeah, Ozarks is lucky to have like these, like people who understood, um, the, the benefit of, uh, of these stories and wanted them to be preserved. But I think we have, a, you know, so many different places that we're really not tapped into. And, um, you know, as, um, as like a photography educator, you know, as well as a photographer, you know, like part of what 
I do with, you know, my students is like, I'm trying to get them to learn more and explore the places that, that they're at, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, um, in general, um, having just a, um, a people have really short, uh, historic memories. I really, it's like our lifetime, maybe our parents' lifetime and just being a little bit more connected, um, to like, for me, you know, like learning more about like the history of the Ozarks are like the last two, 300 years, you know, from, um, as long as, as much as that we could have really helped me understand a lot more about, um, uh, who I am, um, how, you know, the strange country that we live in, um, and, and the strange place that I'm from in a way that is nice. Yeah. Yeah. What I found really funny is like when we were doing our research and there's a lot of books on Ozark humor, um, and it's this kind of body humor that they. I was gonna say, I'm like, I can't get the whole <laughs> Well, no, I, what, what it, I, I realized how much of a direct influence that cultural humor had on my family, and 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 for better or worse, has on me at this point <laughs> in my life as well. Um, but that's that was a connection I, I wasn't really aware of, like a cultural connection, which which became apparent and, and important to me at this point. Yeah. I am so glad that I know a little bit more about the Ozarks and uh, that we have the Devil's Promenade to uh, to give us a little bit of insight into the beauty and magic of this place for anyone who hasn't taken a look at it yet. I believe we are, are we the only, the only people in California, at least, who have it at Skylight Books? Um, it's really close to being sold out. So you guys, I definitely, I think may have the most left. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. am I speaking? Is that right? Antoine? I think, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that the publisher has less than 10 copies. So it's almost completely sold out. We have out more than 10. I know that. <laughs> yeah. I believe um, we'll have the most copies in the United States, if not the only copies. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent. Well, and we, yeah, so we do have them and, uh, and I know that we have at least 10 because, uh, Anton and Laura were over at the store a few weeks ago and we have signed copies, not only the, uh, the maybe only copies, but we do have signed copies (laughs) in store, um, that you can order online to pick up in store, or you can always visit us online to shop and we ship nationwide so you can get them wherever you're at. Um, thank you again so much to my guests today, Lara Shipley and Anton Delazal for telling us about the Ozarks and the Devil's Promenade. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. This was just such a delight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.